So today we are going to be starting our study in the book of Philippians. And I've titled this study, Paul's Mental Health Manual. That is the title of the study um, and our series throughout this study. But to be honest, I did not create this title. I stole it from somebody else. I know. Gasp. Hey, I'm giving him credit. I'm giving him credit. Chill, chill, chill. So this guy, Howard Hendricks, he labeled it Paul's Mental Health Manual back in 1998, before all you junior hires were born. Um, and I think it's still fitting for today in 2023. And it applies to our culture and what we are going through. But to truly understand the book of Philippians, we need to understand the background of this church and how it was started, how it was planted, how it was birthed to lay this foundation. And so we're going to be spending most of our time in Acts 16, verses 11 through 40. And the title of this specific message, as I said, the series is Paul's Mental Health Manual. But the title of this specific message is A Mental Health Crisis in Philippi. A mental health crisis in Philippi. And you might be thinking, what's taking place in Philippi? What is the situation? What is going on? Well, there's not just one crisis. There's actually multiple. First of all, there was no church in Philippi, and there was no synagogue. So God wasn't really present that we see in the lives of people out there, which if there's no church, church plays a big role in a person's life on how they think, feel, and act. There was no men seeking after God. We're going to see in the text that only women in a very small group of women were praying. There's a demon-possessed girl in this city, and her masters are using her to make profit and get rich. And last but not least, there is one prison guard who attempts to kill himself and commit suicide. This city needed Jesus because without Jesus Christ, there can be no change. No one is ever in their right mind outside of the Lord. There is no hope for the future. There is no hope for this present life and no life itself. No healing for our minds outside of Christ. But we're going to discover there's these three people in this passage that God touches and changes and transforms their life. So, I just want to kind of give you a quick recap. Paul is on his second missionary journey, as you can see on this map. And for those that don't know who Paul is, Paul was someone who was rebelling against God, fighting against God. And the Lord appeared to him in a vision, and this bright light surrounded him. And he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus took persecution personally when Paul or Saul was attacking Christians. And Saul got transformed from the inside out as he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. And then slowly but surely, he grew and got discipled and was poured into by others and by the Lord himself. And then he went on three different missionary journeys. His first one was just a small one around in this location up to Galatia, back down. And now he's on his second missionary journey. And that's where we pick up in Acts chapter 16. In verses 1 through 5, we see Paul picks up a new disciple. 
and his name is Timothy. His father was a Greek, which is possibly that he's not, not a believer, and his mother and his grandmother were believers. And he's like, all right, dude, you're going to come with me. And so he follows Paul and Silas. And then in verses 6 through 10, Paul receives a new calling to go to Macedonia. They actually try to go into Asia Minor, which is not modern Asia. This is a um, different location and another location. But the Holy Spirit forbids them from preaching the gospel there. And so Paul travels this whole entire route until he gets to Torres. And he's kind of scratching his head like, why is the Lord forbidding me from preaching over here and going over here? But in a night vision, he sees a man of Macedonia that stood pleading with him saying, come. Come over to Macedonia and help us. And then he awoke and said, you know what? I believe the Lord's calling us to Macedonia. And so they make their way over to that region. And they cross over the sea from Torres over to Philippi. And in verse 12, it says, And from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of the part of Macedonia, a colony, and we were staying in the city for some days. Now, Philippi was a Roman colony governed by Roman law and subject to Roman rule. And this is important to the later portion of this chapter. But Paul gets to the city and stays there for several days. I think it's interesting because Paul doesn't just jump in and start preaching the gospel. He waits on the Lord to move. He's praying and seeking God. He doesn't rush ahead. He's waiting on the Lord's timing. And as several days go by, in verse 13, it says, And on the Sabbath day, that is Saturday, not Sunday, we went out of this uh, city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made and sat down and spoke to the woman who met there. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us and she was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira, who worshipped God, the Lord, and the worship God. And the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her whole household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Now, Paul would normally go to the Jewish synagogues there and start sharing with the Jews first. But since there was no synagogue in Philippi, because there were so few Jews, and to actually have a synagogue, you had to have 10 male Jews to have a synagogue. And there was not even that present. But there was a small group of women praying by the riverbed, by the riverside. And Paul spoke with them there. It's interesting. Some of us, when we think about going out and sharing the gospel, we think about maybe standing on a corner and preaching to people. Paul actually just went and talked to individuals. It says he sat down and spoke to the women. He shared the gospel to these women in a conversational way. He didn't preach to them. He shared Jesus with them. And this is the very first time the gospel was brought to Europe before. And it's at this meeting where the church was birthed in Philippi. 
It says in verse 14, Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us, and she was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira. Lydia was a God-fearing businesswoman, and Thyatira was known and famous for their expensive purple dye. So it's very possible that this woman Lydia was a wealthy woman. She worshipped the Lord. She had a sincere um, heart to worship God, which prepared her to receive the things that Paul would speak. She had religion, but she didn't have a relationship with Jesus. And I love this phrase where it says, the Lord opened her heart. The Lord opened her heart. It is only the Lord who can truly open somebody's heart to receive the gospel. You can have the best argument. You can have the most convincing points. But in the end, it is Jesus, the Holy Spirit, who pulls back the veil. God the Father who chooses to reveal Jesus to that person's heart. And she had an open heart to receive the gospel, to hear it and to heed it. Lydia was Paul's first convert in Europe. And as Paul presented her with the gospel, she believed and was saved. That's how salvation works, is the gospel is given, that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, was buried, and resurrected three days later, according to the scriptures. And when she heard that, it pierced her heart. And she put her faith in Jesus Christ in that moment. I wonder, is our hearts open to the Lord? It says that her heart was open. Are our hearts open to what God wants to do, what God wants to speak to us? Are we closed? Are we calloused? And she and her whole household were baptized. I love this because God desires to move and minister to our families, to our households. However, he does not do so corporately without first doing it individually. Before God moves among your whole entire family, he wants to minister to you personally. It starts with one. It always starts with one because God cares about the individual because if he can get a hold of that individual, then it's a ripple effect from that point. And as Lydia receives the Lord and her heart, her mind is transformed, it influences her family. She has this newfound excitement. And she says to her family, you guys got to know who this Jesus is. And Paul probably shares with her family as well. God desires to minister to our families. And maybe you think your parents need to change. Maybe you think your siblings need to change. No, 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 no. You need to change first. Don't take the speck out of somebody else's eye when there's a plank in your own. The Lord wants to minister to us first and foremost. It started with Lydia and it spread from there. And because of God working in this small group of women, this is where the church was birthed and the gospel would spread to all of Europe at this time. Or not at this time, but later on and throughout church history, the gospel would spread because Paul followed the Lord's leading to Macedonia here. And notice that God was moving amongst a small group of women. It started with a few. Sometimes we think we want to have this massive work of God that explodes out of nowhere. 
But it's all about sometimes the little things and being faithful in the little things. Because when you're faithful into the little things, God will give you more and more. And so she gets saved and she begs Paul to stay with them and she convinces him, he's persuaded, and so she stays. But then in verses 16 through 18, we see this slave girl that is possessed. In verse 16, it says, It happened as we went to pray that a certain slave girl, possessed with a spirit of divination, met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and us, and cried out, saying, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim the way of salvation. And she did this for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you, in the name of, the, uh, in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And he came out that very hour. It's interesting that in verse 16 it says, now it happened as they went to pray. In this passage of Scripture, we see prayer mentioned three times in the place of Philippi, over and over. God wants His people to be people that pray. In Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7, I believe it is, He says that I desire that my house would be called a house of prayer. He wants his church to be a place where people can get prayer and to get, bring God their requests. That's what this church was known for from the very beginning. What are we known for? We should be known for our love, but also for our prayers, interceding for others, lifting up our requests, full of faith, believing that God wants to answer these things. But notice, as, as they went to pray, the enemy starts moving. The enemy starts moving. Have you guys ever thought it was strange that maybe as soon as you sit down to read your Bible or as soon as you go to pray or maybe go to worship or go to church, all these things start happening? How many of you guys on your way to church have ever fought with your parents or have been arguing or your parents are mad at your siblings? Raise your hand. I have multiple times. <laughs> It's because the enemy doesn't want us coming to church. The enemy doesn't want us being in God's word. The enemy doesn't want us praying. That's when the distractions come, when we sit down to meet with the Lord. The enemy doesn't like that. Back in 2020, one of my old junior hires, he texted me something that I still love to this day. And it's in a devotional that he read, and this is the message. Um... He says, Satan dreads nothing but prayer. His one concern is to keep the saints from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil. He mocks our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. Will you make Satan tremble today? That's a good quote, right? <laughs> He honestly will do everything in his power to keep us from praying because prayer is what threatens his kingdom. Prayer is where real power is found when we communicate with the Lord and he communicates to us through his word. And that's why the enemy will come and distract and will try to get our minds focused off of the Lord. 
And we need to bring our thoughts into captivity under the obedience of Christ and continue to bring our requests and our concerns to the Lord. Notice in verse 17 that this servant girl followed them, crying out, these are servants of the Most High God who proclaim the way of salvation. And whenever the Lord is working, the enemy is sure to follow close behind. I bet you Paul did not want this demon-possessed girl announcing their coming. If you remember Jesus' ministry, the first thing he did with demon-possessed people, he told them to be quiet because they knew his true identity, but he didn't want them to be the announcer because the source where it's coming from is polluted. He didn't want demons to reveal his identity. He wanted his disciples in Jesus himself. And so this servant girl that was following them was more of a hindrance than a help. Can you imagine someone following you around? Hey, this guy right here, he's a Christian, guys. He loves Jesus, and that's happening for like several days on end. Imagine going to school and someone just following you around with a blowhorn saying, hey, this person's a Christian. They love Jesus. Wouldn't you guys be slightly embarrassed? Like, please, just like, Keep it down. Stop doing that. I don't know about you, but I get sometimes, I used to get easily annoyed. My little brother knew how to poke my buttons, and he would just make all these noises, beep, boop, 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 you know, and he would just tap, and I just want to like throttle him, like knock it off, and then he would do it for like 10 more seconds. He goes, what? I stopped. And I'm just like, mm. and I would get annoyed by him very easily. Paul here is a very patient man because we already see that he waited many days before going out and talking to people about Jesus. He it says, once again, many days he waited, and she did this for many days, more than two. Can you imagine it keep happening for two days, then three days, then four, then five, then six, maybe seven days? We don't know how many days, but this was annoying Paul. He exercised great patience. But then finally, he was done. And he turned to this girl and said to the Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, come out. And he came out of her that very hour. See, it was Jesus that set this woman free. When someone actually is demon-possessed, it's because they've been doing some really dark things that they shouldn't be doing. And this girl was in bondage, physically, spiritually. And the only person that could really set her free was Jesus himself. It reminds me of the story in Mark chapter 5, where Jesus travels across the Sea of Galilee to minister to this one man who was possessed by a legion of demons. We don't know how many, but very many demons. And he could break chains, having supernatural strength. And I love what it says in Mark chapter 5, verse 15. Then he came, then they came to him, to Jesus, and saw that one, the one who had been demon-possessed had the legion sitting and clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. When Jesus freed this man, it says that he put him in his right mind. And I love that phrase. 
It is the Lord who puts people in their right mind. You and I cannot have a right mind outside of Christ because we need a right heart. The heart and the mind go together. One influences the other. And no one will ever be in their right mind outside of Christ. It is through Christ and God's word that our mind and our way of thinking becomes right. And this woman here is free. I'm not sure if she was led to the Lord. I believe, hopefully she was. But she was in her right mind. Now, everybody else in the city wasn't in their right mind. They were out of their minds, especially her master, because in verses 19 through 24, I'm just going to summarize it for you. The master gets mad, and he seizes Paul, he seizes Silas, and he drags them to the magistrates, the men responsible in the city for maintaining civil order. And he, he drags them to these leaders, and he says, these guys are teaching things that are going against Roman custom and culture. And all of a sudden, he stirs up the whole entire crowd, and the multitude is persuaded. And then these leaders command these kind of officers to strip them of their clothes and to beat them. And it says they were beaten with these rods over and over, and it says when they had beaten them with many stripes. Now, I don't know, I don't know about you guys, but there's nothing worse to me than getting in trouble for something that you didn't do, right? And especially if you did something correct, and then you get in trouble for doing it, like, wait, I did this correct. Why am I getting punished? That's what persecution is. It's when you live correctly for Jesus, but because of the world that we live in, they don't like it. And Paul and Silas here are being persecuted, beaten with rods, bleeding. I don't know if they have any broken bones or not. The text doesn't say. But then they're thrown in prison. In verses 25 through 34, we see this prison guard tries to commit suicide, but then is set free. Look at verse 25. It says, at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prison, the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. I don't know about what you guys do when you're hurt or when you're in pain. But Paul and Silas are bruised, bleeding. They're in shackles. And what they're doing is they're praying to God and they're singing. That is a testimony in and of itself. And see, the book of Philippians is all about joy. How to have joy despite people, despite your circumstances, despite things, and despite worry. They had joy after being beaten, and they're in prison. They're praying to the Lord, possibly thanking God. The apostles did that in Acts chapter 5. Once they got released from prison, they said, thank you, God, that we got to suffer like Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you guys. When was the last time you thanked the Lord for suffering? I don't remember the last time I thanked God for that. We normally don't. Here they're praying to the Lord and they're singing 
hymns to God. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. We are commanded according to Scripture to sing. I personally love worship because I love worshiping the Lord. I love praising Him and I love how He ministers to me in the midst of worship. Paul and Silas are singing and praying. And notice that the prisoners are listening. All the prisoners are listening and they're watching these guys. They're perplexed by the joy and the thanks that they're giving to God. You might not realize it, but people are constantly watching you. They're watching how you handle certain situations. When you go through suffering, they're watching you and how you're going to process that, how you are going to handle it. Some of the world actually will test you and spread rumors to see how you handle something. And it's important to be praying and seeking the Lord, saying, God, give me wisdom. Give me your grace. Give me your spirit on how to handle this. Prisoners are listening to them. Your unsaved family members and friends are watching you, wondering how you are going to represent Christ in difficult situations. And then all of a sudden, there was this supernatural earthquake that came out of nowhere at midnight. At the darkest part of the night, God was working. And he shakes the foundations of the building and all the gates just fling open. All the prisoner chains just fall off. Verse 27, and the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep, seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Under Roman law and custom, the guard who allowed the prisoner to um, escape will receive the same penalty that the prisoner was sentenced on the prisoners. So if all the prisoners escaped, that means all those penalties were going to be laid on the prison guard. And he saw all the prison doors open. And he attempts to kill himself. I want to focus on suicide for a bit. It's quite interesting. I didn't plan this, but September is Suicide Prevention Month. And I think it might be even Suicide Prevention Week this week. Suicide is the second leading cause of death from the ages 10 to 24 years old. Many of us have been affected by suicide to some degree. For those that don't know, my cousin took her life in 2015, uh, the Friday night before my little brother's wedding. I still remember it when I was at my house. We were all getting our hair cut by one of our friends, Frank, um, all the men in the wedding, and my mom kind of lets out this kind of screech that you don't forget. And we found out that my cousin took her life. And that's why this issue of suicide is heavy upon my heart. And we see this jailer notice that word supposing. If you have your own Bible, I would circle that word supposing. 
This word supposing literally means to think, to believe, or to assume. The idea to assume is to suppose that to be the case without any proof. He saw the doors open. He didn't bother by looking and getting up and checking if the prisoners were there. He jumped to a conclusion. And he was about to take his, take his own life. I think there's many reasons why people take their lives. Some people don't like how they look. They don't like how they feel. They think their problems are too difficult. And they think it would just be easier just to end it. Because then all their problems will go away. Some people even think that everybody else in their life will be better if they were gone. All those thoughts are unbiblical. They are all lies from the pit of hell, guys. No one will be better off with you gone. See, I've never attempted to take my life, but I've thought about suicide when I was your guys' age because there's many things I did not like about myself. I hated myself growing up. I was constantly teased. In one resource I read, they said, in the very young, suicide attempts are often impulsive and can be triggered by feelings of sadness, confusion, anger, or problems with attention. This jailer here makes an impulsive move. He sees something, jumps to a conclusion, takes out his sword, and is about to end himself. He reacts without thinking. Those who have thoughts of taking their lives don't really think about the ramification of their actions. The jailer wasn't thinking about his family that he would leave behind. Some of you might be familiar with this man, Nick Wojcik. He has no arms or legs. That's how he was born. That's how God created him. But at the age of nine, he was going to school, and he was bullied so badly at school, he wanted to take his life at the age of nine. And so he tried to drown himself in a bathtub. And as he was trying to drown himself in a bathtub, this one thought entered his mind. He pictured his parents weeping at his grave. And because God placed that thought into his mind, he did not take his life. And that one thought prevented him from committing suicide. That one thought. And now the Lord has used him all over the country and in the whole entire world to preach the gospel, to bring people hope. People really are not in their right minds when they think about suicide. They don't think about the ramifications in their loved ones. If you are contemplating that, I want you to really think about your family and how it's going to affect them. I pray that the Lord will give you a vision and that you will see their broken hearts, their uncontrollable sobbing tears, and the misery that's on their faces because your life does matter to them. See, it says, supposing, to think, to believe, to assume, this one wrong thought almost took his life. 
in every person that has taken their life or her life, his or hers, has done so because of wrong thoughts. I love it. Many years ago, I think it might have been in 2020, one junior higher, actually, James, he's in high school now, he said this, if we come up with the wrong conclusions, we will come to the wrong solutions. And his conclusion was, all the doors are open, the prisoners are gone. And his solution was to take his life. He came to the wrong conclusion because he had a bad thought. Now, we all have wrong thoughts from time to time. I, I don't know, people keep using this word intrusive thoughts. That's a new word. That's, I heard that in the past year or so. Oh, yeah, I have these intrusive thoughts. I was like, where did that term come from? It's almost like downplaying. Like, no, our thoughts are wicked at times. We all have wrong thoughts, every single one of us in this room, even myself. But we need help dealing with these wrong thoughts. And if you ever want to bounce your thoughts off of somebody, I know we even feel like nobody can handle what I'm thinking. But even that is a lie. Honestly, the Lord can handle it. He sees it. He desires to share with us. There's times where Dustin will come into my office. And he, he'll explain something. He goes, hey, correct me if I'm wrong. And he'll explain this, and I'll correct him if he's wrong or if he's not wrong. Sometimes we need to bounce our thoughts off of somebody else. See, each one of us has a sinful nature. Wrong and evil thoughts are natural and easy for us. Mark chapter 7, verse 21 through uh, 23. It says, From within, out of the heart of men, proceeds evil thoughts, adultery, fornication, murder, thieves, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. We can't blame anybody else for our sinful behavior. For the wrong thoughts that come up, it's our own hearts. And that is why we need saving. We need to be saved from ourselves. We need a transformation to be saved from our evil hearts and our minds. And the only hope is a heart transplant. Is the Lord changing us from the inside out? Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 through 27. He says, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. I will put my spirit in you so that you follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. I love this because guess what? You and I don't have the power to obey the Lord. And so he says, that's fine. He saw that. He goes, I'm going to supply my spirit. And by him giving us his spirit, he gives us the power and the desire to do what pleases him. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, just because we are saved doesn't mean all of our problems are solved and then go away overnight. Maybe you've accepted Jesus, but you're still tempted in this area or other areas. You're not alone in this. Did you guys know there's four godly men in Scripture who at one point were extremely discouraged and prayed that God would kill themselves? Jonah, Job, Elijah, and Moses all prayed this. 
Moses had seen God face to face almost. He saw God's backside and kind of was shield and saw God's a glimpse of God's glory. So much so that it altered his face. When he came off the mountain, the people were scared of him. They're like, please put a veil. And he had actually had to wear a veil over his face. He had seen God do miracle after miracle after miracle. Elijah. Dude, this guy prayed and it stopped raining for, on the lands for three and a half years. He prayed a woman's son back to life. He challenged evil prophets to Baal to a God battle. He says, you're God against mine. They called out for half the day. It gets into evening kind of dusk. And he goes, my turn. He soaks the altar with water and he calls God. And fire comes down, consuming even stone itself. That's supernatural fire. Fire can't even burn stone. It can't get that hot. And then a woman threatens him. And he spirals into despair. Runs 120 miles away. Abandons his servant and says, God, just take my life. Each one of these four men had wrong thoughts that God had to correct. And I love it. If you actually look how God responded, God didn't say, Elijah, you shouldn't be doing this. God actually was quiet and patient. God sent Elijah to an angel to cook him breakfast, to give him water. So he gave him food and something to drink and allowed him to rest. He woke up again and he had another cake baked in front of him. He ate again. And God says, hey, I want you to go to this location. And walks 200, I think 200 and 250 miles away. That's like from here to Las Vegas. He walks 40 days and 40 nights. God gives him time and allows him to exercise. God was gentle in how he responded. And listen, God is more gentle than any person in the world. He knows how to deal with our thoughts. He knows how to correct our mind just so gently and slightly. He's patient. He's personal. Even after we come to Christ, we can still have wrong thoughts that need to be corrected. I know I do. We have wrong thoughts about God. We have wrong thoughts about people, about church, about life, about purpose, about good, about bad, and more. The only way to correct these thoughts is with the truth of God's word. That's why my biggest thing on my heart is I want to get you guys into God's word. Because if you can get into God's word, that is half the battle. Because then I can step back and the Holy Spirit can work. And as you're reading, God's word never goes away void. It's always accomplishing something in our hearts. And the Lord will bring those scriptures back to your mind. This is how we combat those wrong thoughts, is God's word. That's why it's so important to be in the word and even come to church to receive teachings about God's word. It's God's word that transforms us from the inside out. Romans 12, 2 says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. He, God wants to transform your mind from the inside out. And he does that through his word. Now, Paul actually corrects the jailer's wrong thoughts by shouting out and reasoning with him that they were all there. One wrong thought almost took his life, but Paul valued this man's life because God valued it first. 
And I want to remind you, your life is valuable to the Lord. I was thinking about this as I was studying. I think last week we did communion and we actually focused on Jesus's precious blood. Your life is so valuable that he shed his priceless, precious blood and says, I will take my blood and spill it out for you, down payment for you. There's nothing more valuable than the blood of Jesus Christ in all the universe. And he says, I will willingly shed it for you. You are valued, cherished, loved by God. John chapter 10, verse 10 says, the thief does... The thief does not come except to steal, kill, and destroy. He says, I have come that they may have a life and that they may have it more abundantly. See, we have this kind of back and forth situation in this chapter. All of a sudden, God's moving, and then all of a sudden they're praying, but then the enemy's moving at the same time. And as Paul is in prison, worshiping the Lord, the enemy's also at work. When that supernatural earthquake came out of nowhere... The enemy was at work whispering to the jailer's ear, hey, take your life. Because Satan is a murderer and the father of lies. And he was working. But thankfully, the Lord was working also, using Paul to prevent this jailer from taking his own life. Notice verse 28. But Paul shouted with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Now, in my mind, I don't know what this prison looked like. They didn't have fluorescent lights. They had torches and only lit up so much space. Did Paul literally see the prisoner about the, the prison guard to take his life? Or did the Holy Spirit warn him supernaturally? Is that, it says that he was in that kind of like the inner prison parts. So I believe it's possible that Paul did not see him. But he shouted and says, hey, do yourself no harm. God used Paul to stop this man from committing suicide. And just as Paul was used by God to stop this jailer from taking his life, God might want to do the same in our own lives. However, we cannot keep silence. When someone tells us we need to speak out like Paul did, if one of your friends in junior high tells you that they have thoughts of suicide, you do not keep that to yourself. Because that is not a burden you need to bear. That is something you need to tell an adult, your teacher at school, your parents. You are doing more harm to your friend if you keep that secret. You are. But it says in Proverbs, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Do you love your friend enough to hurt them? And by telling that secret to somebody else to actually save them? If you're not willing to tell somebody, then you don't really love your friend. I'm sorry, you don't. You think you love your friend, but you don't. Because if you really loved your friend, you would rat on them and ask for help. Paul shouted with a loud voice. I love how different translation puts it. NLT says that Paul shouted. He said, stop, don't kill yourself. The Amplified says, Paul shouted, do yourself no harm. We are all here. And I believe God might be saying that to some of you this evening. Do yourself no harm. 
Notice in verses 29 through 31, it says, Then he called for a light. He ran in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. This is beautiful. He comes trembling in. What the enemy meant for evil, God meant it for good. God could see the whole big picture. God says, I want to save this man's life. And he saved his life. He says, what must I do to be saved? If one of your friends were to ask you that question, do you know what you would do? Do you know how to lead them to the Lord? You don't need to just bring them to church. You don't need to have a pastor pray with them. You personally can lead them to the Lord. Take them through the Romans road. Take them to 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. Romans chapter 10, that if they confess with the mouth and believe with their heart, they shall be saved. They knew exactly what to do. Just like Lydia. They preached the gospel to him, shared the gospel. They say, they say believe and you'll be saved. And it says in verses 32 through 34, then they spoke the words of the Lord to him and all his all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now he had brought them into his house and he set food before them. And he rejoiced having believed in God with all of his household. I love this. You know why? Because there's instant transformation. As soon as he accepts the Lord, he's now tending to their wounds. He's washing their wounds. He's preparing a meal. This is midnight. He's like, honey, get up. We're making, there's guests. And she's like, what, huh? He's like, bake a cake. And like, he's like, you guys got to know about this Jesus. He's waking up all of his kids. And his whole family gets saved that night. How beautiful. But notice once again, the pattern, it starts with an individual and then spreads to the rest of the family. God is just looking for one person to use. And he uses this jailer to infect and influence his whole entire family. Now, guess what? These are the first members of the church in Philippi. You have a jailer who is about to commit suicide. You have Lydia possibly a demon-possessed girl. This is the first church in Philippi. Were they perfect? Absolutely not. Did they have their problems? Yes. But the Lord was there, and the Lord was moving. The Lord was transforming. The Lord was giving hope. And all of a sudden, in verses 35 through 40, I'm just going to summarize it. Next day comes, and they tell the prisoner guard, hey, the officers, hey, let the guys go. And Paul's like, are you kidding me? They're just going to let us go after we've got beat? And he says, did you guys know you beat a Roman citizen? And all of a sudden, their eyes got really big. This is a Roman colony. And you weren't allowed to beat a Roman citizen without a fair trial. And Paul, and I believe Silas also, were Roman citizens. And so Paul uses this and throws it in their face. And they're like, hey, please, please, please. And they're kind of almost begging. Please don't do anything. And they're allowed to be released. 
This is the start of what God starts to do here. Paul would come visit this church a second time, and then we're going to see next week the letter that he wrote to them. And Paul writes this letter from Rome as he was in prison many years later, encouraging them, lifting them up. But notice that this church had several mental health crises that they were dealing with, individuals. And Jesus wanted to help them, and he did, like Lydia, the slave girl in the prison guard. So no matter what you are going through or what your condition is, it is not unsavable and unsalvageable. The Lord can use you and minister to you and bring healing, transformation, renewal. He specializes in changing and transforming his mind. It's funny because man will try to understand the mind, and man can't. Man doesn't. But the Lord knows how to minister. And his methods, his ways of ministering work time and time again. I've had friends in Bible college who, because of drug use, lost their short-term memory. And by memorizing God's word, it was restored. God's word has the power to change and transform. And he desires to do that in our lives. 